0: In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob and I talk about how to dissect your business competitors. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 404. Is this a podcast not found? Is that what, what? this episode is? Why? I don't know. Because it's episode 404. Come on. Wow, get, with, get with the nerd oh, jokes. Sorry. <laughs> I totally oh, missed the prompt. Come on, man. All right. theme music. Welcome to Startups the Us, The podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Mike. And I'm
1: the guy that doesn't know what 404 means.
0: Uh, and we're here to share experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. How you doing this week, Rob?
1: I'm doing pretty good, actually. Um, aside from missing that bump set that you just g- gave me at the top of the uh, the intro, there, we have wrapped up our move. So, Sharon, and I bought a house in Minneapolis. We decided to stick around for a few years. We had been renting for two years, and while I I don't know, have, have I gone on my like rant about how buying a home is like not a good financial decision.
0: Uh, have I done that? You have not oh, done that, but talk- I have seen various people say that. But yeah,
1: yeah. I, I won't do that here. I'll spare everyone. Maybe maybe in an, an after show at some point. I'll uh, I'll dig into that. But but I realized that sometimes you make decisions that are not the best financial, but you make it more for like your life, or your lifestyle or your family, or really just a, like we wanted more control of exactly where we live. We want to live right around this lake in Minneapolis called Lake Calhoun. And there are just very, very few rentals here. So we have lived in one for two years. It was kind of a crappy house. I mean, it was fine, but it was like landlord didn't do much upkeep on it. I'll put it that way. And, you know, really we're just kind of wanted more control, also didn't want to ever be like, hey, we sold the house, you guys have to move in 30 days, you know, that type of thing, because we know that would happen at the worst possible time. It wouldn't happen when I'm totally off and not working, it would happen right in the middle of me starting as, you know, a new a new startup or something. So anyways, all that to say, we bought a house just one block away from where we lived before, and got the keys on a Friday, Packer showed up on Sunday, Mover showed up on Monday. And um, it was, uh, of all the moves we've done, it was by far the most seamless and, and least stressful. It really helped. neither Sherry and I really worked very much last week. And so we are almost unpacked. We're also motivated by our packers. They give us two prices. One was to pack into cardboard boxes. We're you have all the waste and you have to get rid of it or to pack in these plastic reusable tubs that they take back and you basically just rent them for the move. And the fact that you only have them for a few weeks, it was just motivation to like get those things returned and, and get get the whole house unpacked quickly.
0: That's cool. I mean I've always had to like move myself. So I haven't moved in more than ten years at this point. It's probably been yeah, it's been closer to thirteen. But yeah, I just I don't look forward to ever moving again. But it's one of those things where I know at some point we'll probably have to, but I just don't feel like it at the moment yeah
1: it's not fun it's a it's a short-term pain for what could be a long-term gain you know if if you like in our case i mean now that we're in this house that's larger closer to the lake we like it more it's newer just all these things It was totally worth it. But yeah, coming up to it, I was just filled with like anxiety about, oh God, this is gonna be such a, you know, such a terrible experience because so many of them have been in the past. You know, we we used to move ourselves. And then Sherry got when Sherry got the job in Fresno, they paid to move us across the country. And then obviously Lead Pages paid for they offered for any anybody on the drip team to move here. And so now that we've done it a few times and paid someone to do it it would be hard to to go back especially we have three kids we have all the, you know it, it's just there's a lot of moving parts and I, I can imagine even you know packing ourselves at this point would take a couple weeks so it's not ideal we could obviously do it if we needed to we've done it before but it helps you know it really does help to reduce the stress of the move knowing that one day they're going to come and it was three three guys showed up and in like 7 hours they packed our whole house it's crazy how fast they are, you know?
0: Well, because they don't care because they're like, none of the stuff is theirs. So it's easier for them to just throw stuff in a box because they're not like, oh, I'm going to like reminisce about this for a few minutes or talk to so-and-so and, you know, like have a conversation about it because like you're going to procrastinate to some extent because you don't want to move <laughs> because it sucks. Totally. But uh, yep. yeah, I mean, they're just going to, Go in, get the stuff done, and get it taken care of. And they also don't necessarily need to worry as much about, like, oh, uh, this item here is, I wanted that in the new living room versus right now it's in the dining room. They just throw it in a box.
1: Right. They just throw in a box. Yeah. I'll tell you two other things that made it really, really less stressful than it used to be. Cause the last time we moved, aside from the Minneapolis move, I mean, we were in Fresno for seven years, I believe. And something that's different now is, We got in this house, and it's like, oh, the doorbell doesn't work. Well, I'm going to need to go get a doorbell. You know, I need this halogen lamp that burned out in here, and I it's some specialty halogen lamp, so I don't have that. And this towel rack's broken. And, you know, there's just a bunch of stuff. In general, the house in great shape, but there's little things. Those little things tend to bother me. I don't have to drive all over town doing that. I jump on Amazon. I order it. I mean, I probably spent – oh, I had to get a shower head because the shower head was – I didn't didn't like it. So I probably spent $300 in the last week on little – knickknacks and parts and things that I used to, you know, that used to be a three hour drive all around town to find all these things. And now it shows up in 48 hours. And so it really reduced kind of reduces the time commitment of, of this move because I'm able to just as, on an ongoing basis. And then, of course, I would have driven around, I would have found the halogen, come home, put it in and the next day, notice something else. So then I would have driven around again, and you just it reduces the, you know, the need to kind of waste time, which I think is good. And the, the other thing, and then I'll stop talking about the move, is changing addresses is way easier than it used to be. So eight, 10 years ago, I used to call everybody you know, and I would have this huge list of our credit card companies and all this stuff. And I would call the 800 numbers, you wait on hold, you change the address. Now, I just went through LastPass. And I looked through all of our accounts. And we also have a list of, so, there's a few that, you know, whatever alumni associations or whatever that, you know, I don't have accounts for, but it was so much faster. It probably took me 90 minutes. And I was able to just kind of do it without talking to anybody on the phone. You know, I was listening to some music and just hammering through different different tabs in Chrome to to be able to change them all. So... I don't know. I think, life, uh, I think life's a little better than it used to be. Cool. How about you? What's going
0: on? Not a whole lot. Just to kind of keep a track of the MicroConf Europe tickets that are going on sale. So uh, we've released those to Founder Cafe members, and then we went out to the second Round for the uh, previous attendees for Microconf, and then I think by the time this episode goes live, the next round of tickets is just going to be going available. So this is the episode will go live on Tuesday, and then the following day is when it will go out to the early bird list. So if you're interested in meeting up with us in Croatia and 120 to 150 other entrepreneurs, go over to microconfEurope.com, sign up for the mailing list. As long as you do that on Tuesday before the email goes out on Wednesday, you should be able to get into that and we'll send out the links and you should be good to go.
1: Sounds good. It's going to be a good time. What are we talking about today?
0: Well, today we're going to be talking about how to dissect your business competitors. And I've kind of done this, I'll say somewhat ad hoc over the years where I've been talking to somebody and they're like, oh, the conversation will come up about like who their competitors are and how big they are and how well they're doing. And there's some kind of several rules of thumb that I learned from the VP of marketing at Pedestal Software back like 12, 15 years ago. And he basically laid out, he's like, oh, well, this is how I go about doing it. So we just got to talking and he talked about like revenue and how you look at the number of employees and all these different things. And so I've kind of had these things in my head for a while. And so what I did was I put them down into a list and kind of walked through how you can go through and analyze how big a competitor is and how much I'll say strength or resources they have to to bring to bear on a particular problem in their space or to turn around and crush you. So if you're looking at a market and you're trying to figure out, should I even go in here or not? Is there a valid business here? Just knowing that there is another business in that space is a good data point. But knowing the specifics and being able to drill into those it's good to know how it is that they make their money and how you can do it as well. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to go into a market and decide to do things in a completely different way without any justification. If something is already working well, especially like if it's an entrenched competitor, they've been there for a while and the industry is already used to operating in that way, then you can come in and do kind of the same thing. But you have to know what the lay of the land is, how things are currently working in order to be able to make it successful for yourself.
1: And so why is it important to do this? Like, what, what are the benefits that you get from learning all this information that we're going to talk about about a competitor?
0: So, this is a way to basically go partly through the validation process, but if you were trying to figure out, like, if you, if you already have a product, for example, and you want to know, like, are there other people in an adjacent market that I could serve? Looking at one of your competitors who already serves that market would be a good way for you to decide whether or not you should go into that, and if so, how you would position yourself in the market to them. So, obviously, like, there's, there's low-end, there's mid-tier, and then there's higher-end, like, enterprise-level sales. There's B2B, B2C. Like all these different things that you can talk about or or look at in terms of a business and just knowing where all the different pieces are is going to help you figure out where to position yourself. So it's partly about market validation, but it's also about being able to position yourself in the market and explain to people why it is that they should buy from you.
1: Yep. That makes a lot of sense. I also think it can help you perhaps know the kind of the unit economics or the profitability potential of the business. Because if someone, if you find out the revenue is 5 million and they have 10 employees, it's like that's probably a very, very profitable business and, and easy to run. And you can think to yourself, oh, I can do it with only 10 employees, you know, or I should keep my head count down if I'm going to be a similar business model versus if they're at 5 million and they have, you know, 100 or 200 employees, it's like, oh, that's a it's a very labor intensive company. Do I even want to get into this business or are they just hiring out ahead of growth? And and you can kind of kind of listen to that. So I think it also can help like if they've raised funding and you know that they're burning more you know how much they raised and you know they're at X million in revenue and this many employees, you can back of the napkin calculate their burn rate and you could back of the napkin calculate when they need to start raising another round or if they're gonna run out of funding or that kind of stuff. So I think the, the more of these things that you learn, and we're gonna talk about revenue and target customer type and, and other things, it just helps you kind of get that mental map of the landscape you know and and you don't just do this for one competitor you do it for four or five of your closest competitors and you put it all up on a whiteboard or in a dock and it's like you start to get this understanding of the landscape and and how they think about things so let's dive into the first one
0: so, the first one is trying to figure out how much revenue they make. And there's a couple of back-of-the-envelope calculations you can do for this, and it does depend greatly on the industry. So, for example, with a, a software-type business, most of those types of businesses tend to make somewhere between 150 dollars and $200,000. That's kind of like the I'll say, like the average range. But there are certainly exceptions to that. If you look around, there's companies like Apple and I think Balsamic and several others have been public about what some of their numbers are. But you can get up above $200,000 in revenue per full-time employee. And You have to remember that that's revenue, not profit, and that's per full-time employee. So, uh, usually, you can do a back-of-the-envelope calculation to figure out how much money a business is making based on the number of employees they have. So, if they have if they have 10 employees, you can kind of ballpark, if it's a software company, that they probably make somewhere between one hundred dollars and $200,000 per employee. So, you say, okay, well, just quick math on that, $1.5 to $2 million. That's not exact. Obviously, like there's a range there, and it could also be much lower. So, they could be making $100,000 per employee, or they could be making two hundred fifty dollars or $300,000 per employee. That also depends a lot on whether or not they're funded. So we'll talk about some of those things, but just a raw calculation, that gets you in the ballpark, but it's by no means exact. You have to make sure you bear that in mind. It is not exact at all. And then in terms of the industry, it can vary greatly from there. So I have a friend who's in the oil industry, and we got to talking about this exact same topic, and I kind of gave him that ballpark estimate, and he's like, you're off by a magnitude of, you know, by a factor of 10. And I was like, well, why is that? He's like, well, because in the oil industry, we sell based on margins, and we have to sell a lot more. Our margins are much lower. So, like, basically, you had to multiply by 10 in order to get the revenue, and then their profit is basically what they support their employees on. So, it was like nine times off
1: right cuz their profit margins are so slim that they have to make a way more revenue and that's that's a thing if if we we should probably stick to like online businesses you know when talking about this just for not that bring up the oil example was fine but we should clarify that we're really talking about like startups even like physical e-commerce is is kind of tough right because i know uh someone who runs a you know a 2 or 3 million dollar e-commerce business but the you know the net margin on that is only 10-15% and so you can imagine they couldn't support 30 employees on that, right? Because you just don't make enough. So this really is, I mean, I, I think we're talking more about like software companies.
0: Yep. I agree. And I I brought up the oil example just to point out that when you get into physical goods, like with software, your profit margins tend to be like 90% or upwards of 90%. But with something like selling oil, for example, you sell oil at $2 per gallon, your actual profit on that is only like 10 cents or 20 cents. So that 10 or 20 cents is what comes back into your business. And you can use that to support your employees. And that's why my but back of the envelope calculation was so far off by a, a magnitude of 10 when I was talking to that guy who was, you know, an executive in the oil company. So just keep in mind physical production costs really eat into that, and your revenue will be substantially higher, or their revenue will be substantially higher because of that. But it doesn't necessarily translate to profit anyway.
1: Yeah, I, this is the the formula the kind of 100, 100 to 200K per employee that I use in my head just when I ballpark things. And as you said, there can be outliers. You can have some startups will be five people and they're doing 5 million or 10 million, you know, and they're super profitable. And then others that have raised funding are the exact opposite, right? They're they're doing 200K in, in ARR, an in annual recurring revenue, and they have 20 employees because they've staffed up. So it can be skewed, but this is for a, when I think of it as like a, a bootstrapped and profitable or even funded, but kind of well-run and, and, capital efficient company, I think, you know, I think this is a reasonable number. If someone's growing really fast, this number can get skewed in in one direction or another. And as you said, you know, you, you, in outline here, you have early stage or like pre-employees where it's just founders. It's like pretty much guesswork, right? There's, unless you hear them comment in in a podcast or in in a blog post, or, you know, they've posted it live on bare metrics or, or something, it's just pure guesswork at that point.
0: So, the second thing to look at is their target customer type. And to do this, you can look at their pricing and specifically who they are targeting. And by who they are targeting, there's two different classifications. Generally, it's either B2B or B2C. And within B2B, there's several different levels. There's like the high-end uh, enterprise, there's the small-medium business market, and then there's the professionals. So, freelancers, very small agencies or partnerships, things like that. And then there's also, I would throw prosumers in there as well. So, those are people who are professional freelancers, but they maybe they do it on the side or it's something that they are interested in, but they don't necessarily gain their full-time living from it. And then B2C, it's like something like mass market where you're trying to sell one of every single thing to every person on the planet. Then there's well-off individuals or trying to sell to families or pro-hobbyists or prosumers. So those are the different two general classifications, B2B and B2C. And then within each of those, you have to also, be aware of what type of customer they're selling to. And that's mostly a function of price. But again, it depends on what it is that they're selling, what types of, whether it's a software or a digital asset or a physical product.
1: I think pricing is a big indicator here. And then just look at their marketing, right? Look at their headlines, look at their copy, look at their colors and their design. I mean, if you look at, I was thinking like, what's a a mobile phone company that really caters to like the youth these days? It's like, they're going to have a very different logo. Is Boost Mobile still around or am I totally dating myself?
0: I think, I don't know. I don't think so. I think they're part of, um, I don't know, the one with the purple logo for the Oh Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is great
1: radio here. Sorry, folks. But, you know, some some brand like that that's targeting, you know, kids in college is going to have a very, very different language and very different logo than, you know, Salesforce.com. That's B2B enterprise, all that stuff. It's just, you, you can kind of, you can get a feel from that if they're positioning themselves well. And then price, of course, is a big deal. When I was first trying to figure out pricing for drip, and I was really agonizing over it, I went out to all the competitors that I knew about, and I put it all in a single dock of what everyone's pricing was, all the grids. And I was just trying to analyze it. And, and it really helped me get a feel for like where, you know, where we should land at as a new startup that's launching. And of course, pricing's tough. there's always, it's always a lot of guesswork, but it gave me a really clear picture of, of kind of, again, the landscape. What was interesting is I, I returned back to that dock every six months or so. And so many of the prices were just dramatically different. The people had different tier levels. Some had raised prices. Some had lowered prices. Some had raised them on the low end and, you know, lowered them on the high. end. it was really interesting to watch that over time. And what I wished I'd done, I updated it a few times and, like, did a snapshot over time. But it, it is fascinating if you watch competitors and make it, you know, I don't know, every 60 days or every, every three or four months, go into this group. And whether you have a VA do it or do it yourself and just take another snapshot of their pricing and you can watch how stuff shifts over time in a space.
0: The next thing to look at is what their sales and acquisition channels are. So there's a few different categories. Obviously, there's online, which includes their website, their content marketing, advertising, email list, et cetera. And then there's offline channels, which are much, much more difficult to find and analyze the effectiveness of. So the things like trade shows, physical mailings, relationships and partnerships that they're leveraging. If they have a brick and mortar store, there's obviously heavy infrastructure costs or, and logistical costs of just getting products to those. Again, we're probably going to lean away from the, the physical product side of things. But you can imagine that with a offline channel such as a trade show, how do you know how many customers they're getting in contact with or what their cost to acquire those customers is? You can kind of guess based on what it costs to attend the trade show. You could go to some of them like a competitor Let's say they go to trade show X and you go to the trade show X and say, Hey, can I see your sponsorship rate card? And you look through that, figure out what sponsorship level they went in on and then figure out how many people they probably sent. And if you were at the trade show, then it makes obviously that easier because you can just go up to their booth or go up to those people and ask them questions. But you can get a a sense of what their marketing budget is like based on some of the different things that they do. Obviously, trade shows, it's easier to calculate. But if they're doing physical mailings, it's really hard to get any insight there because you don't know how they're getting their list, what they're paying for it, or the effectiveness of it. All that stuff is going to be very much siloed inside their company. And it's going to be much harder for you to figure out not just how much the money they're spending on it, but whether or not it's effective.
1: And, you know, one way to also get an idea is to use an online tool to look at your competitors' keywords that they rank for, to look at ads they've run or are running. So there's tools like SpyFu, S-P-Y-F-U, and Ahrefs or Ahrefs.com, which you can type in a competitor website and it'll give you a good idea of what they rank for and what the terms are and how much traffic potentially. I mean, it's all. It's all estimates, right? But it's it gives you some idea. And then just to get an idea of their top-level traffic, like how many uniques do we think they get? I used to go to compete.com, but that shut down. And so now I've, lately I've been using rank2traffic.com, rank and the number 2traffic.com. And there's another one I can't think of off the top of my head, but what I did is I searched for compete.com competitors or replacements, and there's actually a core thread where folks named a bunch of them. And I tried like 10 of them and, and rank2traffic and another one was... I felt like had the, at least the best guesses. And again, these can be off by a factor of two or three in either direction, which is, a, it is a bummer, but at least it gives you some idea. Sometimes you'll put in a competitor and it'll just say, not enough traffic to list here. And it's like, oh, they're probably getting like less than 5,000 uniques, right? They're not doing a lot of online. That That's not a major channel for them, most likely.
0: The next thing to look at is the type of product they're offering. So we're going to kind of neglect the physical product side of the equation and focus on digital products. But even within digital products, you've got things like software, you've got courses, all sorts of things that fall under that digital category. And there's going to be support cost differences for them and engineering and research and development costs that are radically different. If you have a course, for example, the support costs on that are way, way less than they are for a software product. Just because with software products, you have to train and educate people versus a course that is the whole goal of it. And in addition, with a with most software products, you're gonna have to offer some sort of ongoing support. If it's a SaaS application, that's a monthly ongoing support that you're offering. But with training courses, if there's a bug or a problem in it, you typically fix it and roll out the new version to everybody, and that's it. Like you don't have to continually update it, at least in terms of fixing things inside that. It doesn't mean you can't offer a new version of it or an update data version for 2018 versus 2016, but the length of the time that you're going to be spending doing support and offering any sort of warranties or bug fixes or anything like that is dramatically lower for a course than it is for a SaaS product.
1: Another thing you can look at is the length of time they've been in business. Um, older businesses do tend to be more stable without you know, massive revenue fluctuations. They also tend to be in the software space slower. So, they're slower to release features. There's a lot of opportunity when competing against older businesses that have gotten kind of big and, and bloated. Newer businesses can obviously have a lot more revenue swings or, or faster revenue growth in terms of percentage-wise. But... They can be harder competitors for you to compete against because a lot of times if you're just a team of, you know, one, two, three people, your advantage is that you can move quickly and that you can kind of take refugees from, from those older, larger companies, I think there's a lot of opportunity. It was, the, it was the playbook of drip, you know, that we were the young upstart and we were smaller, but we were shipping features so much faster than a lot of our competitors. And uh, it was kind of, you know, easy pickings against a company that had been around for 10 years and had a bunch of legacy. And that's the thing with oil companies or paper manufacturing or, you know, kind of typical brick and mortar businesses. If you're 50 years old or 100 years old, you have a brand name, you can be entrenched in a space. But if you're a software company that's 10 or 15 years old, you are very likely to have a ton of legacy code, and your software is very likely to not be as good as software that was built today, and so it is kind of this inverse inverse thing where older companies while they you know will have a lot of revenue and they have a lot of momentum and they'll have a lot of brand there is there tends to be a pretty good vector to to get in there as an upstart and uh, you know and make some traction
0: and just to kind of Tack on or clarify a little bit what Rob's saying, because I I don't want people to misunderstand him based on the, the, exactly what he said. But when he said that the new businesses tend to have better code, it's not that they have. It's not like the ones and zeros are any better. It's really just that they have basically honed in on exactly what it is that the customer wants in terms of like the minimum stuff that needs to be built versus the businesses that have been around for a long time. It's just so much harder for them to make a change, even if it would be better for their customers, because they have to take into consideration. The existing customer base, and if they make a, a large change to like the front end of their product, and they suddenly alienate thirty thousand customers, it's really bad for them. So that's just going to m- make massive problems for them and support headaches. And they're ch- going to choose to not make those changes, even though they could and they have the resources to.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's there's legacy customer stuff where you have, that's what you're talking about of like, you can't make a change. And then there is legacy code stuff. I mean, when I think of how much better software development practices have gotten over the past 15 years with extensive unit testing and, you know, the, the front end kind of integration testing and the agile development methodologies, I mean, the software I was writing and working on 15 years ago was harder to maintain. And maybe that's not across the board, maybe that's not for everyone, but that software, we could not ship features nearly as fast because the software, it didn't have unit tests and it was it was more crufty and, it, you know, it was all these things. And these days, I believe the practices, they've gotten better. And I, I think software these days is easier to work on, assuming that you have knowledgeable people who are, you, you know, using the right engineering practices and aren't just kind of hackers throwing stuff at the wall uh, on a weekend or something.
0: The next thing you can look at is the company leadership and how that is structured. If they're self-funded, the founders tend to be in those company leadership positions. If it's angel or VC funded, the founders may be there still in the executive capacity, or they may have kind of put into more of a, a director role and they, they've brought in like professional CTOs or CEOs, for example. It depends on how far along they are. If it's a established business that's been around for 10, 15, 20 years, then who knows what that looks like. But It also gives you an indication of what things are going to change in the future. If they just brought in a new CEO or they just got a round of funding, for example, that dramatically changes what the future vision for the the company is going to look like. And those are just, uh, again, just data points that you can look at. But it helps you to understand how quickly is this company going to change direction or, and, and are they likely to change direction. If a company has been doing their business exactly the same way for the past five years, chances are good they're probably going to do that for at least the next year or two. But that that's no guarantee.
1: Yeah, and you can go to Crunchbase for this. You can sign up for Google Alerts on the company names. Um, I think that's a good idea anyways. One thing I'll caution uh, you know, as we're talking through this is, I have been in environments where people were way too fixated on what our competitors were doing. Oh, they just shipped this thing. Oh, they just raised this round of funding. And it was like, this stuff's good to know, but this is not like make or break. Like you should be focusing way more on your customers than on your competitors. With that said, everything we're talking about here is still good to know to have an idea of the landscape and to revisit it every. I would say in a a startup environment, it's probably every month to to three months if you're in the early stage, but this is not something that every day you should just be thinking about and and trying to look and watch competitors and watch what they do because it just matters so much less, you know, unless you're in a neck and neck race with your competitor. And I I just, it's just not, not a good thing to be overly fixated on what other people are doing. I think another thing to look at is red flags or exceptions. These indicate potential problems or major changes that could be good or bad that a competitor is doing. So if you hear about layoffs they're doing, if there is a quick change of leadership, you know, where the, the CEO was perhaps asked to leave or, I don't know, anytime there's a change of leadership, you always you always wonder what happened. If they raised funding recently, they have new product announcements, all kinds of stuff. So, this is where, you know, you can kind of, again, monitor whatever the email lists or, you, you know, there's, there's people talking about any, any industry. So, if you're in marketing automation, then there's three or four people who are kind of industry experts and you can be on their list or you can, um, like I said, subscribe to Crunchbase updates or uh, do Google alerts just to kind of hear about what what your competitors are up to.
0: And the last thing you can look at to kind of dissect your business competitors is to pose as a customer and try and find out how they treat their customers. So there's obviously some ethical questions that you have to answer for yourself here and in terms of how far you're going to go obviously like you can sign up for a competitor's product you could just get on their mailing list you could call or email their support and directly ask questions posing as a customer gets a little dicey of course in terms of ethics and how far you want to go with that but you know each each person kind of has their own i'll say line in the sand for that personally i don't think that i would go too far with that i might look at their email list i don't know as i would sign up for a trial if i wasn't actually interested in it though but all of this gives you an idea of how they treat their customers and whether or not there are ways that you could position yourself to customers that are unhappy with their product or their service in order to make yourself more attractive to, them, to those customers that are leaving.
1: So to recap, we had eight ways to dissect your business competitors. The first was look at their revenue. Second was target customer type. Third was sales and acquisition channels. Fourth was software versus courses. Fifth was length of time in business. Next was company leadership then red flags and exceptions, and the eighth one was posing as a customer. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888 or email us at questions at com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for Startups and visit com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.